Wow. So this morning we are, we are jumping back into our series, uh, verse-by-verse study on the, the life of Joseph. Although today, today we are actually not going to be talking all that much about Joseph. Because sandwiched between chapter 37, which is where we left off, as Joseph has been you know, brought off into slavery in Egypt, sandwiched between 37 and chapter 39, where the story picks up about Joseph's life in Egypt, right between 37 and 39 is this chapter called 38. You guys are so good at math. That's what I love about this church. I love that. So yeah, chapter 38, right between chapter 37 and 39, is this chapter where the author takes a little bit of a detour. It's kind of like, you ever read a book where, where the author is going back and forth from chapter to chapter and there's two parallel stories and eventually they come together? You've seen that before? Maybe, okay. How about, have you ever seen a movie where these two parallel stories come together? Right. So that's kind of what's going on here. While Joseph is in Egypt, meanwhile, chapter 38. Meanwhile, chapter 38. And the author is going to be looking at uh, one of Joseph's brothers in particular. He's going to be looking at uh, Judah and Judah's family. Now, Pastor Henry already gave you a warning, but I'm going to do it again, just a last chance uh, for those of you who may have young ones with you. This chapter, uh, it's a little disturbing. Honestly, it's just a little bit cringeworthy, right? Um, if you read this chapter and you don't cringe a little bit, um, we offer counseling here. Um, <laughs> If you don't cringe a little bit on this chapter, you know, please set up an appointment with Pastor Henry this week. Um, it's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. And as much as I would love to just kind of like skip right over this chapter, I would. I would. But this is the thing. I really do believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. And I really do believe that there are things in this chapter that we need to learn. There are things that we need to process and apply to our lives. First of all, here in chapter 38, this chapter really does help to paint a, a contrast between the life of Joseph and the life of his brothers. And if we're going to spend time talking about the incredible character of Joseph, and next week, his character is on full display in chapter 39. But if we're going to focus on, on the great aspects of the people listed in the scripture, we also need to be true to the text and focus on maybe the lack of character that we see in some of the, the folks in the scripture, right? You know, next week, we're going to see Joseph is just such a man of integrity, especially in the area of sexual temptation. And today, what we're going to see is another man, his brother, who's an absolute failure in the areas of sexual temptation, right? But we need to look at both, don't we? Right? Because otherwise, what ends up happening, this is my fear. And if you skip over chapter 38 and you just focus on chapter 39, what you have painted is this picture of how this godly man resists the evil temptations of this woman. And all of a sudden, maybe women are painted as the problem. Right? No. Sin and sexual sins, these are problems of mankind, men and women. And the Bible is full of, of godly men and women who failed in this area right? Some of them are our heroes, like David, right? So we need to focus on this chapter. A second reason why this chapter is so important is because in this chapter, we are introduced to people whose names are written in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
That's pretty awesome. The names that we come across in this chapter are in the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is what Matthew says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. We've looked at some of these names already. And Jacob the father of, not Joseph, the father of Judah and his brothers, Joseph being one of them. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar. By the way, just so you know, including women's names in genealogies at the time when Matthew wrote this is so weird. Like that just didn't happen. When you'd list a genealogy, it was always traced down through the men at that time. The fact that Matthew includes these women is actually like taking a huge step forward, isn't it? And uh, it is interesting though, that all three that he lists, they got some baggage, you know? And we don't have time to read the whole genealogy that Matthew lists out, but let me tell you, there are names in this list, including these three women, who are, they're surprising. They're not the types of names that you would expect to see in the genealogy of the Messiah, right? Even David, right? I mean, King David was an adulterer. He ordered that a man be murdered. I mean, not exactly what you would expect in the line to the Messiah. But included in that list is also names like Rahab, Rahab was a prostitute. She wasn't even a Jew, but she put her faith in the God of Israel and was welcomed into that nation. Pretty awesome stuff. And the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's names like Ruth. Ruth was from Moab. She was a Gentile, and she is part of this genealogy. And names like Judah and Tamar, who we're going to be looking at today. You know, there's a lot of names in there of a lot of messed up people. And that's one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it's not afraid, you know, to to be real about the flaws of people because the fact of the matter is we are messed up people, right? We're messed up people. And and your sins may not be the same as David's or, or Tamar or Judah, but you've got your own flaws. And the same God of grace that that saved these people is the same God of grace who saves us as well. So amen. Thank you, God, for including these stories for us. You know, God is in the business of changing lives. And what we see in this chapter is that God is working both in the lives of of faithful people, faithful people like Joseph, faithful people like, like Daniel, but he also works in the lives of faithless people to do what? To accomplish his will and his purposes. Isn't that amazing? That's what the sovereignty of God is all about, that you cannot mess up God's plan, that he can work in and through even your failures. Does that mean you should fail on purpose? Of course not, because there's consequences that go along with those, but you will not thwart the plans of God. Well, let's begin our study in Genesis chapter 38, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 38, verse 1, it says this, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So as chapter 37 closes and Joseph is now a slave in Egypt, we're told that at that time, Judah left his family. He left Jacob, he left his brothers in Hebron, and he traveled down to Adullam. Now, 
you might notice on the map that Adullam is actually, it's north and west of Hebron, right? So why does it say that he traveled down? Well, if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me say this, but it's always worth uh, remembering. And that is this, in the scriptures, when it says that somebody was traveling up or traveling down, it's not talking about north, south, east, and west, usually. Usually in the scriptures, it's talking about altitude because how did they travel? By foot, right? So when you're gonna go someplace, if it's a climb, you'd say, yeah, we're going up to Jerusalem because it's up on the Judean hill country, right? Well, Hebron is in the Judean hill country and uh, Adullam was in the lowlands. So in this case, uh, Judah has left Hebron, which is in the high hill country. He's gone down to the lowlands of Adullam uh, on his way towards uh, the Mediterranean, the coastal plains. And this is a geographical region referred to as the Shvelah. So between the Judean highlands and the coastal plains is the Shvelah. It's, a, it's a, the lowlands of Israel. And the text tells us that Judah is there with his friend Hira. And as we're making our way through this story today, you're going to see that whenever Judah and Hira are together, whenever they're hanging out with each other, Judah is getting himself into trouble. How many of you had a friend that you just always seemed to get in trouble with? Anybody? Okay, hold on a second. How many of you were that friend, right? (laughs) Like, Whenever my friends hung out with me, they got in trouble, right? That was probably more my story. Well, in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 26, we're told that the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Brothers and sisters, it is important for us to choose our friends wisely. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that you can only have Christian friends, right? Like the holy huddle. Let's all get together and let's not talk to anybody else who's not a Christian. That would mean, if you did that, you would have to completely ignore the command that Jesus gave you to go and, 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 and bring the, God, uh, the, good, the good news of the gospel to the world. People need the good news. You gotta bring the good news to the people. So no, you, you don't avoid being around people, but we need to remember that we're in the world, right? But we are not of the world. And we need to be aware. We need to be aware of what is the influence that the people I'm spending time with are having on me And what is the influence that I am having on the people that I'm spending time with? And you got to have real honest conversations between you and the Lord about whether or not some of your friendships are healthy or hurting your walk with Christ, right? It doesn't mean you shut yourself off from the world, but you need to be aware of these things. Well, in Judah's case, Judah, he might actually be the problem. I don't even know. But Judah has left his father's household, and he's now spending time with his buddy Hira, a Canaanite woman catches Judah's eye. Verse two says, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. It's a great name. (laughs) Isn't that great? 
What do you want to call our son? Er. <laughs> Perfect. That's a great name, Er. Well, the text doesn't give us her name. I bet it was better than Er, right? Just says that she was the daughter of a man named Shua. And Judah takes this Canaanite woman to be his wife, and she gives birth to Judah's firstborn son, Er. And you might be thinking, wow, I just love a good love story. This is great. Isn't this romantic? Well, no, it's not. There's a problem. There's a, there's a big, big problem. And the problem here is that Judah has married a Canaanite. You see, we need to remember that marrying with the Canaanites, this was not an acceptable thing among the Israelites. Judah's great-grandfather Abraham and his great-grandmother Sarah, they refused to let their son Isaac marry a Canaanite. So they sent uh, Abraham's servant away to go find a wife, and he brought back Rebekah, right? Far away, brings her back. And, and, and so he marries Rebekah. And then Isaac and Rebekah, when they had kids, their son Esau, he goes off and he marries a few Canaanite women. And it says that, that Rebekah, she said, man, I'm miserable because of the wives that my son Esau has chosen. So they sent Jacob, you may recall, they sent Jacob 450 miles away to Padan Aram to find a wife from among uh, Rebekah's relatives, right? Like, you, you, you cannot do this to us, Jacob. Do not marry a Canaanite. Well, now Jacob's son Judah is going to marry a, a Canaanite. And here's what you need to understand. The problem, the problem is not that they married people from different races or different cultures. Because I'm telling you, there are, there are people professing to be believers who will tell you you shouldn't have interracial marriages. Listen, that's baloney, okay? It, it, that's about as strong as I feel comfortable saying it from this position. But that's just crazy. That is just crazy. That is not the point of this passage, is it? The problem is that they were marrying people who worshiped different gods. That's the problem. God calls his people to be set apart. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart, to be fully devoted to him. And marrying people with different faiths can bring about all kinds of problems. Samson, you remember Samson? That guy got into all kinds of trouble because of his marriage uh, to foreign wives. How about King Solomon? King Solomon, man, did he mess up, right? And he was warned. He was totally warned. Don't do it. Don't do it. And he's like, yeah, but she's so beautiful, right? And so he totally compromised and went after foreign women. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 2, this is what it says. You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. That's what God is concerned about with the intermarrying with the Israelites and the Canaanites. He doesn't want their hearts to be taken away from devotion to him. And this applies to Christians today as well. As single men and women are considering dating and the potential for marriage, it is critical to make sure that the person that you are considering for dating and marriage is somebody of the same faith. 
And you might say, well, I know this person who dated a non-believer, and then that person came to Christ. And that does happen sometimes. But just as often, the person who's a believer marries an unbeliever, and they wander away from their faith. And I'm going to ask you the question, if you're considering dating somebody who's not of the same faith of you, is it worth the risk that your heart and your devotion would be taken away from the most important relationship in your life, your relationship with God? It's the most important relationship you have. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And you might be thinking, well, I'm already married to an unbeliever. You're stuck. It's true. It's true. But it doesn't have to feel like that way, does it? You serve them. You love them. You represent Jesus Christ to your unbelieving spouse. And you pray that they come to know him. Amen? Amen. Well, Judah ignores the counsel of great-grandpa, grandpa, dad. He's going to do his own thing because that's what young men and women like to do, right? Do their own thing. Verse 4 says this, She conceived again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Wanted to add another good name. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name, this is my favorite one, Sheila. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to call him Shayla. I just feel like it's just a, it's slightly better for me. Um, I'm going to call him Shayla. I don't even know how you pronounce it, to be honest with you, in, in Hebrew. But uh, these are not names that you're going to find in the top 100 for 2022. So if you're looking for a unique name, this is a good, this is a good list. Well, it says that Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Now, Chezeb was just a, another town that was just a little bit south and west of Adullam. So Judah's wife, they now have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And as time passes, Judah's boys, they grow up. And the time comes for them to start thinking about marriage and you know, having families of their own. Verse 6 says that Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Whoa. Wow. Judah's oldest son, Ur, is so wicked in the sight of the Lord that the Lord puts him to death. Now, the text doesn't even tell us what Ur did. I'm kind of glad, honestly, because then you'd be like, okay, well, that's the thing you have to avoid, right? I don't know if it was about a specific sin, to be honest with you. I think it was about a characteristic of Ur's heart. He was wicked. I think probably everything that Ur did was wicked. And you might be thinking, yeah, okay, I know, there's wicked people, right? But I thought that God was love, right? I mean, I thought he was kind. I thought he was gracious. I thought he was merciful. He is, right? I mean, he's all of those things. And we love to talk about those things. But when we see a passage like this, we need to be reminded that God is also just, right? And God is also righteous, right? He is holy. Wow. And I think sometimes when we, when we read these things, we are totally taken back, aren't we? But you want to know the truth? The truth is that every single one of us is a guilty sinner before God. Every single one of us has wickedness that is in our heart. It's our sin nature. We have it in us. According to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is 
death. That's the penalty. That's what you get. The penalty for sin is death, eternal separation from God. But Romans 6.23 also says that there is good news, that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of God's great mercy, because of God's grace, and because of his love, he has offered us forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that, you know what the thing is? The thing that we should be amazed at isn't that God put Ur to death for his wickedness. What we need to be amazed at is the way that God extends grace to so many. The way that he extends mercy to so many who don't deserve it. And by the way, if you think you deserve grace, it's not grace, right? It's not grace if you deserve it. No, we don't deserve it at all. The fact that you are alive today, the fact that you are breathing is a gift of God's grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Your salvation is a gift of God's grace. Every day that you have is a gift from God to be lived for his glory. It's his grace that he has given to you. Yes, God is gracious, but he is also holy. He is righteous. He is just. And the text says that Ur was wicked, so God put him to death. And with Ur's death, Tamar became a widow with no son to carry on the family name or to receive the inheritance that was due to Ur as the oldest son of Judah. So in verse 8, we read this. Then Judah said to Onan, this is his second son, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. I'm born in 1976. 45 years old, I don't know about the duty of the brother-in-law. <laughs> that doesn't exist in my culture. Go in and perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up offspring for your brother. I know a lot of the women are like right now saying, praise God, that ended. <laughs> you know, wow. But in this culture and other cultures of Mesopotamia during this time period, if a man's brother died, it became the responsibility of his brothers to take the widow as a wife to provide for her and to provide her with a son. And the term that is used to describe this arrangement later became called the Leveret Laws, Leveret Marriage. And it literally means marriage with a brother-in-law. You see Leveret, you might think like it's Levi, but it's not. It's, uh, it's the leveret laws, which mean to be married to a brother. And these leveret marriage laws would later become part of the Mosaic law, hundreds of years later. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, these are the rules for leveret marriage. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Tamar wasn't allowed to just go and marry someone else when her husband died. The text continues and said, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. So he would give his, his, his brother's wife a son who would then carry the name of his deceased brother and all of the inheritance rights that would have gone with it. And I know that when we read something like this, right, it is completely foreign to our way of thinking, right? We, we don't think this way. But you have to understand that in this culture, uh, things were incredibly difficult for a widow. 
incredibly difficult. And so a law like this was designed to protect and to provide for widows. It was a gracious law put in place for them. By the way, this is the same law that is the backdrop for the story of of Ruth. You read the book of Ruth and Ruth and Boaz. This is the same law that's the backdrop there. It's also the same law that you remember the story in the the Gospels when the Sadducees, they come up and they're testing Jesus and they have this ridiculous story they're throwing at him. They don't even believe in resurrection, right? But they're like, well, in the resurrection, if a man, you know, if a woman marries a man and he dies, then she takes his brother as a wife and then he dies and then she dies marries his next brother, and she's like seven times, like seven brothers all die. Honestly, if that happens, there's, you know, <laughs> what is going on with this lady, <laughs> right? But that's the, that's the law. That's, the, that's what they're testing Jesus with, right? This whole idea of leveret marriage. And so Judah tells his son, Onan, to perform the duty of a brother-in-law. This is the, it's your obligation, Onan. You need to do this in order to raise up a son for your brother and to provide for Tamar. Verse nine says, but Onan, he knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Okay, So I told you that this passage is a little uncomfortable. Um, What is going on here? Well, there are those who would point to this passage. They would point to this passage to suggest that God is against any type of birth control. That, that, That what God is saying in this passage is that God is against birth control. But to derive that from this passage is to completely misunderstand what Onan's sin really was. Onan's sin was greed. It says it right in the text. Onan's sin was greed, which led him to commit further sins. The text says that Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. It's not going to be my son. Onan did not want to provide for his deceased brother uh, because Onan was next in line, right, as the now oldest living son of Judah. He gets the inheritance, doesn't he? But not if he provides a son for his deceased brother. So he thinks, huh, I ain't doing it. I am not going to provide a son. So out of greed, he prevents Tamar from getting pregnant. Out of greed, he disobeyed his father and the responsibility that he had to to both his brother Ur and to Tamar. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that makes Onan's sin even worse, right? Because if all Onan wanted was to not provide a son for his brother, what could he have done? Not doing it, Dad. I am not going to do it. I will not provide a son for my brother. He could have just completely rejected Tamar, couldn't he? And then probably dad would have gone to his next son, right? But that's not what he did. Instead, Onan continued, continued. It says as often as he did this. He continued to use Tamar for his own sexual gratification while purposely avoiding his responsibility to provide her with a son. 
Onan wanted personal gratification without responsibility. That was Onan's sin on top of his greed, right? And I can tell you that that same issue, personal gratification without responsibility, is the same underlying issue for just about every sexual sin that you can think of in today's world as well. People want to experience what God created for good. They want all the pleasure of what God created for good without the responsibility of uh, falling underneath the parameters by which he is set, right? And, And where does that lead? Where does it lead? Unwanted pregnancies, sexually transmitted diseases, broken hearts, broken lives, you name it. Personal gratification without responsibility because of his greed. Text says that what he did was wicked. It was so wicked in the sight of the Lord that he put him to death also. And so Tamar is still now without a son, and Judah only has one son left. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. Okay, apparently Judah doesn't think he's old enough yet. For he feared that he would die, just like his brothers. So Tamar, listen, she went and she remained in her father's house. Judah has now lost two sons, two sons at a young age, right? They're both dead. And like I said in the, in the story about the, that the Sadducees presented, as a father, you start to say, like, what's the common denominator, Right? So, like, don't be too upset with Judy. We might be thinking the same thing. Like, what's she putting in his dinner, you know? I had, two so- I had three sons. I'm down to one, and the common denominator is Tamar. So he tells her to go wait, but he has absolutely no intention of following through on this, does he? None. Judah is now also abandoning his responsibility to Tamar as well. This is on his shoulders. He had an obligation to provide for her. Verse 12 says that in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's brother, died. When Judah was confronted, us confronted, no, comforted, when he was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. Oh, no, this isn't going to be good. He's back with Hira. Well, apparently, some time has passed, okay? Enough time. Uh, Judah's wife has died, and, and, and after grieving his wife now, Judah's buddy Hira shows up, and the two of them are going to head north now to Timnah with their flocks. This is a time when they would bring their flocks to be sheared. They're going to make some money. It was a time of celebration, probably uh, excessive celebration. And they're up now in Timnah, cashing in on, on their wool. And in verse 13, it says, when Tamar was told that your father-in-law is going up to Timnah, to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage." Now, although the text doesn't say how long it's been, it's been long enough for her to realize that, that Shayla is never going to be given to her in marriage. She's figured it out. But you notice that she's still wearing her widow's clothes? She's just waiting there like, this is never going to happen, but she's still wearing her widow's clothes. And so she decides, all right, 
He's never going to ascend Shalas. It's time for me to take matters into my own hands. That's what she's going to do. Now, I just want to say this right from the beginning. What she does is wrong. Okay, this is wrong too. It's not like Judah's guilty. Judah's very guilty. Ur was guilty. Onan's guilty. Judah's guilty. And now Tamar is guilty. So she takes off the garments, which then identified her as a widow, and she dresses herself up like a prostitute. Then she positioned herself along the way to Timnah, where she knew that she would catch Judah's eyes. Verse 15 says, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Yippee, <laughs> a goat. <laughs> awesome. Apparently, this was very valuable at that time, all right? Probably not as valuable today. You're going to get a goat. All right. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. Give me a pledge until you send the goat. And he said, well, what pledge shall I give to you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Kind of ironic, actually, that she was not able to conceive with Ur or Onan, but in one night with Judah, she becomes pregnant. Then she arose and she went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So apparently, apparently Judah has enough of a reputation that Tamar believes that if she can just position herself as a prostitute on the way to Timnah, that there's no way. I know Judah. He's not going to be able to refuse. And Judah takes the bait. She was right. Judah sees her. He negotiates with her over payment. He offers her a goat. She agrees, but only if there's a pledge involved. I'm not just going to do this. You've got to give me a pledge so I know that I'm going to get the goat, okay? And the pledge that she asks for is Judah's signet, his cord, and his staff. Now, the signet was a ring. It was the ring that would be used as Judah's seal. Uh, if you were sending an important document, you would close up the document, you would pour some wax, and you'd seal it signifying that this is coming from Judah, right? Kings had it. Wealthy people would all have a uh, signet ring. It was his his unique signature, right? And um, the signet ring would have been carried on a cord that he would have hung around his neck. So she said, give me your signet ring with the cord and also give me your staff. And the staff that he would have walked with, he would have carried, also would have probably had engraving somewhere on the top of it, identifying that it belonged to Judah. Big giant J on, uh, on, the, top of his, on the top of his staff. And uh, in modern terms, this would kind of be like her saying, well, all right, you're going to send a goat, but until then, I want you to give me your passport and I want you to also give me your credit cards. Right? That's a pretty tall asking price, wouldn't you say? I mean, this is serious. You're going to take my passport and my credit cards? Nah, I'm out, right? That's the crazy part. He goes through with it. 
Like this, he is giving her something of incredible value for temporary pleasure, right? Wow. This is just like his uncle Esau giving up the birthright for some soup, right? Oh, I'm just so hungry. Oh, take the birthright. I don't need it. I'm just so hungry. I'm probably going to die if I don't eat lunch, right? That's what Esau did. And now here we have Judah doing the same thing. He exchanges something of great value in order to experience temporary pleasure. And brothers and sisters, this is how the enemy works, isn't it? It's not just true for Esau and Judah. He wants you to focus on the pleasure of sin and give absolutely no thought to the cost. No thought. But there is always, always a cost, isn't there? You've probably heard this saying, but it's, it's, it's worth knowing that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And brothers and sisters, sin will always cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. We must count the cost. Well, Judah agrees to the terms and he sleeps with Tamar. She becomes pregnant. In verse 20, we read this. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back uh, the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. She wasn't really interested in a goat, was she? And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I haven't found her. Also, the men of the place said that no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, just let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent the young goat, and you didn't find her. Hey, I tried to come through on my promise. She's not there. Let's just leave this alone, because otherwise, we are going to be humiliated, right? He says, I'm not doing that. I'm going to cut my losses. Just let her keep it, and uh, I'll avoid any further embarrassment. Well, verse 24 says, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, get this, bring her out and let her be burned. Wow, burner. I mean, the, the, the regular punishment was stoning, but he says, that's not good enough. She should be burned for what she has done. Now, technically, technically, Tamar is betrothed to his youngest son, Shelah, even though he is intentionally not providing Shelah as a husband. So technically, she really has committed adultery, right? But what's really scary here What's really scary is the double standard that we see from Judah. Not only, not only has Judah neglected his responsibility to provide for Tamar, but he is ready to watch her die for the same sexual immorality that he himself was engaged in, even if he didn't realize it was with her. You know? I heard a pastor say that, you know, our sins look so much worse on somebody else, don't they? They look so bad on other people. The scary part for me, though, is the fact that you and I, we can fall into this same trap. Isn't that true? 
How often are we guilty of the same double standards as we relate to others? It is shameful how quick we can be to judge others for the very same things that we have been forgiven for. And I think the longer you've been a Christian, the greater at risk you are for doing this. Because we forget how much grace God has poured out, how much mercy he has poured out on our lives. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, we should wink at sin. Like, oh, it's no big deal. I was forgiven that. Just do it. It's fine. It's no big deal. That's not what I'm saying, right? It is a big deal. Sin is always a big deal. But I am suggesting that we need to become ministers of the same grace that we have so freely received. Amen? We need to be ministers of God's grace. I'm suggesting that instead of picking up stones, right, we need to be bringing people, ushering them to Jesus where they can truly experience forgiveness for their sins, where they can be set free and experience the same grace and mercy that we have. That is what we need to be doing. Well, Judah calls for Tamar to be burned, but what he doesn't realize is the only one getting burned today is is Judah because because Tamar has a trump card in her back pocket, doesn't she? Oh, she is about to turn the tables on Judah. Verse 25 says this, as she was being brought out, I love this, just like, just picture the drama. There's got to be some really great music playing in the background right now, the thickening of the plot right now, okay? As she is being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, oh, Judah, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Hey, could anybody here tell me who these belong to? Anybody? Anybody with a capital J? Anybody? <laughs> and then Judah identified them and said, watch this. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Judah has been an absolute fool, right? I mean, let's be honest. He has made a fool of himself in, in so many ways. He has failed to provide for his daughter-in-law Tamar, and not only that, he has been an absolute hypocrite, right? But, but to his credit, To his credit, like David, when David was confronted about his sin with Bathsheba, right? Like David, Judah acknowledges his sin here, and he declares that Tamar is innocent. He said, oh, she is more righteous than I. I'm the one that sinned. I'm the one that blew it because I didn't provide for her. I didn't provide her with my son, Shelah. This is on me. And he never knew her again. She, however, was pregnant and ready to have a son who would carry on the name and to receive the inheritance. Actually, not one son. She's getting a double blessing. She's got twins. I don't know. Is that a blessing? Uh, People with twins? I think it is. I think it is. I'm grateful that we had them one at a time. Um, because I seriously, we still couldn't keep up with it. I don't know how you do it with twins. It's amazing for those of you who have twins. 
Verse 27 says, When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as I drew back, as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made it for yourself. Good job pushing through and winning the race. Um, they were really competitive. I bet twin boys are really competitive, right? They were competitive at birth. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Sarah. It was probably red thread because it's second place, right? That's why they did that. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of this message, this chapter, this chapter is definitely um, filled with, with stories that they're disturbing, right? And it's so, so contrary to our culture all, from start to finish, right? We, it's just uncomfortable, right? The sinfulness of man is on full display in these verses. But I also mentioned that there are, there are things that we need to learn from these verses. First, the story of Judah and Tamar, as uncomfortable as it is, reminds us that we serve a redeeming God, don't we? A God who is able to redeem what the enemy meant for evil and turn it out for good. That's incredible. That is incredible, incredible news. Just think about the fact. You think about how ugh, this chapter is, right? It's awful, right? But from all of this awful, God, through the line of Judah and Tamar and through their son Perez, is going to bring about a savior of the world, Jesus the Messiah. That's amazing. That's amazing. That means that, that no matter what you've done, and some of you are still probably beating yourselves up over, over things that you've done in your past, and I'm just going to tell you, I think you, it's time. It is time, if you've confessed that sin, to leave it in your past, all right? And just trust that the same God who can work about taking this ick and doing something great like bringing about Jesus, he can make good things come out of all the messes that you made. I have a friend who once said, when God plants flowers, he uses dirt. I don't know what dirt's in your life, but it's time to let God make flowers, right? Don't live there anymore. Second thing we see is that as we continue to study Joseph's life, we're going to see that Judah changes. And that's, I think, one of the best parts about having this chapter in here is that Judah is a scoundrel, right? He sold his brother into slavery. He's the one that said, hey, let's not kill him. Let's take some money and make him serve as a slave, right? He sells his brother into slavery. He does all this icky stuff here in this chapter, right? But he changes, and we're going to see that change when we get to later chapters here in Genesis. One last thing that I think we learned from this passage. In our first week, I told you that the story of Joseph is not primarily a story about Joseph. We learn a lot about Joseph in the story, but primarily the story of Joseph is a story about the sovereign God of the universe who is working through the life of a faithful man in order to save a family, the family of Jacob, Israel, in order to build them into a nation, right, that would lead to a Messiah, Jesus. Chapter 38 shows us why God needed to bring the family of Jacob out of Canaan and bring them down into Egypt. It was to preserve this family, and it wasn't just to preserve them from a famine. He's going to use the famine in order to preserve this family. They needed to be saved from their own sins is what they needed. They needed to be brought out of Canaan because what we see in this passage is that they are going to be consumed 
by the Canaanite culture if God doesn't get them out of Canaan. They needed to be brought down to Egypt. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about that as we continue with our series on the life of Joseph. Next week, we're going to be looking at chapter 39 and, and back into the story of Joseph. But at this time, I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come up and close us in song as we close our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, yeah, some of the things that we read in Scripture are uncomfortable. They are. But it's there for a purpose. And God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you have spoken to each of our hearts this morning. And maybe revealed areas and things that we need to be focusing on. I know for me, God, I know for me, I want to be a better conduit of your grace and your mercy to those who need it most. And God, I'm so thankful that we can come to a place, it was already said today, we can come to a place like this, we can open your word, we can study without fear, right? And we can praise your name together in song and through, through sharing in, in, with each other and praying together. What a gift we've been given. God, help us never to take this lightly. And God, I do pray, as it's already been said multiple times, we want to walk out of here changed people. We want your word to accomplish what you sent it forth to accomplish today and each day. And we pray for that in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.